The majority of what I talk to my clients about is not sexy at all. It's not about the physical act of sex. It's not about technique. It's not about like, oh, I'll teach you the best technique for a blowjob <laughs> and your marriage will just kick back into full swing. No, it's literally <laughs> talking about schedules, date nights, communication skills, vulnerability, making an effort. Hey guys, welcome back to Mostly Balanced with Mia and Carly. Hi guys, welcome back. I loved recording with Maisha. She was so cool and so fun and just had so many interesting things to talk about and such a great perspective. Yes, I love her. So this conversation is all about sex and conversations you should be having and navigating your sex drive or anything related to your sex life with your partner. I loved it. I think that Maisha was like the perfect person to have on this episode. She's so well-educated and she has such a great perspective. I particularly liked what she talked about when she was talking about being a feminist and still being sex positive. It was just such, such a necessary perspective and a conversation that we haven't had yet. So I totally agree. I think she was the perfect person to have on to have this conversation. And I'm so grateful that we got to have her and you guys are going to love it. It's there's so many good topics in here. And before we get into it, Mia and I both came today ready to talk about our new thing. And it was the same thing. Yes, we're both watching Made on Netflix. And I'm really enjoying it. I'm only a few episodes in. I was just telling Mia that I'm watching it at the same time as I'm also watching you on Netflix, you season three. So I keep going like switching back and forth between them because I feel like neither of them are really the type of show that you want to watch so many episodes in a row. But Maid is about a single mom. She escapes an abusive relationship and it's all about how she is trying to create a better life for her daughter and she's homeless and there's just a lot. There's a lot, but it's really good. The acting is so good. And I think the story like really pulls you in right from the start. Yeah, I love the actress. It's Margaret Qualley. I think that's how you say her name. And I loved her in The Leftovers and she's in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I, as soon as I saw she was in this, I, I just loved her. I always loved her in The Leftovers. And it's such a good show. The acting is so great. And it is really stressful. I got what you mean. I can't watch more than one at a time, but it is so good. I can't wait to watch more tonight. Yeah. And it's based on a book. It's based on a book by... The author's name is Stephanie Land, and the book is based on her life experiences. So that made me even more interested in it because I couldn't really gather if it's a true story. Like, I think it's just based on a book that's based on a true story. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like the book isn't a memoir. I think it just has pieces of her actual stories. Definitely recommend. It's a really, really good watch. I'm curious if it's just going to be like this one mini series. I feel like it never happens anymore. There's always a season two. Right. I know. I'm really hoping for some positive ending because honestly, right now I was getting a little frustrated. I said to Dan, I'm like, oh my God, this is showing you just like why people stay in abusive relationships because this is just so stressful. And like like all the, the process and everything she's dealing with is very complicated. And I hope that we see a light at the end of the tunnel because right now I am very anxious. Me too. I I hope I actually, I just need something uplifting. So as I'm like talking, I'm realizing that I'm watching this at the same time as you, which is like a creepy serial killer show. And I'm also, I just finished reading a book called A Good Neighborhood and it was so good. It was one of the best books I've read in a long time. Really? I mean, probably not that long because I also have read so (laughs) many books I say that about, but it's by an author named Therese Ann Fowler. 
I've never read anything by her before, but this book was on a list of books that you should read. I don't, I don't think it was Reese's book list. I think it was a list on Pure Wow. And so I put it on hold on the library and then on my library account on the Kindle. And then I got it last week and it was so good. I had read a lot of predictable books lately and this one definitely kept surprising me. There's like a lot that <laughs> unfolds. I don't want to give any of it away in case you read it, but it was so well written and just so sad. But so much of it is just real life stuff that you're just like, oh my God, how does this happen? Like it was just a very, very sad, but really good book, like a good read. I read it really fast. I'll add it to my list. If you need something uplifting to watch, I haven't started yet, but Insecure season five is out and I am obsessed with Insecure. I've probably talked about it before. It is one of the, like, it takes a lot for me to love a comedy, like love a comedy and think it's actually like, genuinely very funny. And I loved Insecure every single episode. I was so sad when I binged one through four and now I'm so happy season five is back and I just haven't started it yet, but that's all on my list. And you will, it's definitely like funny and feel good and it's great. Yeah. People have been talking about it a lot lately. I think I heard them talking about it on the intro to girls got to eat last week. And I've always heard such good things about insecure. So I don't know why I've never watched it. So maybe I'll use this as an excuse to binge the mm -hmm. first four seasons. Yes, 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 yes. And I guess that's all. I got my wedding dress today, which is so fun. Yeah. That's not all. You have such a big update. You've got your dress and it's the one that we love. <laughs> Yes, it was the one I saw with you and I loved it. And I went back today and it was so much fun. Sarah Seven's just such a great experience. Like I had, I had someone different helping me today, but it was so great. She was so helpful and fun and it's just the cutest salon. It was so fun. And they gave me a little swag bag. when I, I was going to ask what was in the bag. It's this cute little tote that says chic as shit, which I mentioned was, is there like tagline and a little Sarah seven coffee mug and a pen and some postcards. And I had a little note saying how great I looked in my dress. It was very cute. Nice touch. I love <laughs> that. I loved it. I'm so excited. I feel like now so many things of my wedding are coming together and I'm very much just like, that was kind of the last, one of the last bigger pieces. And now we'll move on to smaller stuff. So I feel just very like at ease. This process has been so fun and kind of easy. I've been making pretty quick decisions, but I'm just so excited. It's just still a year away. Did they give you like a whole timeline of when you'll be able, when you'll start fittings and everything? I won't start fittings until next September. Whoa. Isn't that crazy? Cutting it yeah. a little close. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I was very surprised. Wow. But yes, great customer service, great dresses. They say they are like the type of dresses you feel comfortable in and a dress you would actually want to wear. If you have a more minimalist, simple style, but want something really well made and fitted and just like really flattering, definitely go check them out. It was such a fun experience too, even just as me, like going with you, it was so cool. And it, they had just moved to a new floor. So they were still moving some things around like when we went there, but it was still such a cool, fun vibe. I loved it. Yeah. It's looking good. They finished up <laughs> the seventh floor. <laughs> I feel like we have to talk more about wedding planning on here. Cause so many people always have questions about how wedding planning is going and the process and everything. And your process mm -hmm. has been pretty smooth. Not yeah, I think I always went into this knowing I didn't want to get stressed. Like this is supposed to be something really fun and exciting. And I, I don't know, I've always loved planning things like making mood boards and coming up with what kind of style. And I've, I'm typically like, I had always said I'm indecisive growing up, but I'm trying to make really quick decisions. So not getting stressed. We're having fun with it. Dan's pretty involved. Like we all, we talk about things together and have calls with our planner together. And I always like run things by him. So it's been pretty fun. I've like very much enjoyed this process with him. 
that's good that he's been pretty involved, but not like too involved. <laughs> yeah. He's involved to the right degree. <laughs> Loosely involved. Loosely um, involved. Well, that's so exciting. Yeah. I feel like we don't have much more to talk about, but this, again, this is such a good episode. I hope you guys love it. We have a good ones coming up again, like some topics we haven't discussed before. So super excited to get these people in the conversation. And this is our 90th episode. I know I'm like jumping the gun. We'll do a celebration at 100, but 90 is pretty big. I am very proud. It's crazy. I can't believe it's already almost 100. We really have to think about who our 100th episode is going to be. I know we have to have some sort of party or celebration. Yes. All right. Well, I hope you guys love the episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you have been enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review. We really appreciate it. And it just helps get the podcast out there to other people. Yes. Well, hope you enjoy the episode and we will see you again next week. Welcome back. Today, we are so excited to be joined by the founder of Sex for Life. She's a sex and dating coach who helps people have a more fulfilling and exciting sex life. And she's also the host of two podcasts, Down for Whatever and Dating White. So welcome to Mostly Balanced, Maisha Battle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you both. Thank you for coming on. We're so excited for all the things we have to talk about. But before we dive into it, can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, where you're from, where you live now, and a little bit more about what you do? Sure. Yeah. So I am currently based in San Francisco, California, and I was actually born in the Bay Area, but raised in Louisiana. So the Bible Belt, which has a lot of interesting cultural, I guess, intricacies when it comes to sex and dating. So was kind of like raised in that environment and then came back to California for school. I went to undergrad at San Francisco State and ended up out in New York for about nine years after graduation. So I kind of lived all over, studied abroad in Amsterdam. We can talk a little bit about that. And that definitely influenced my interest in sex and culture. But now I'm back again. Again, there's like a siren song to the Bay Area for me. Like I just keep coming back and it's always different. It's always beautiful, but it's always challenging in its own ways. So yeah, I've been back since 2014. I know exactly what you mean. That's me with New York. I feel like it just calls me back. Yeah, (laughs) I, I feel the same way about New York too. It's so interesting. You grew up in Louisiana, the Bible Belt, and you always have had an interest in sex. That's interesting because we had another sex coach on here who grew up in the South and talked so much about how that impacted the conversation and any dialogue or any even exposure to sex growing up. So what was that like growing up? Did you talk openly about sex with your friends or family or was it a taboo topic? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely taboo in the culture. Um, In my house, not so much. And I don't remember any explicit conversations about sex so much as like a more permissive atmosphere around like adult content. And I don't mean like (laughs) X-rated movies, but like, you know, I feel like I could watch whatever my parents were watching, which if it had, you know, um, kissing or, you know, even like a light sex scene on TV, like my parents weren't necessarily shielding me from that in the ways that I know a lot of my peers were shielded from that and kind of guided away from any sort of media that depicted sex outside of 
of marriage. And, you know, I grew up in a time where there was a big culture around, you know, the promise ring and, you know, keeping yourself pure until marriage. Oh, yeah. And yeah, a lot of my friends were in like Bible school. And if I stayed the night with them over on a Saturday night, I had to go to church with them on Sunday morning, that type of thing, even though my family wasn't super religious. And so I grew up with this kind of feeling like I was part of this culture, but not part of it. You know, I was like witnessing it and not really relating to it wholly. And it was middle school where that really kind of culminated in a real disconnect for me because I'm a Virgo. And so I like data and I like things that I can kind of like talk and reason through. Right. And that's kind of my approach to sex as well. It's like a human experience that we should all have a basic understanding of for our own health and well-being. And what I noticed was the sex ed curriculum that we were receiving was actually edited, hand edited by a group of concerned mothers. So that means we got this text, which was full of information, but it was literally sharpied through by a group of moms who probably like the week before went through the curriculum. And this was approved by the school somehow. So it was a really weird thing for me to experience. And of course, all of us were like holding the text up to the light so we could see, you know, like read through it. And I just felt like this is wrong. Like if there's a book that has information that someone, presumably a scientist or educator, thought we should all use at this age, why aren't we getting it? Why are there all of these restraints and constraints around education in terms of sexuality? And I feel like even if you went to a school where there was a more robust sexuality program, you're still missing a big piece of the puzzle, which is pleasure, which is communication, which is advocacy and body autonomy. So those are the things that really stood out to me uh, as someone growing up in the South. Like there's something going on here. I'm not quite sure why it's happening, but I'm pretty sure it's cultural. And it took me going through all of my education up until now to really start drawing some fine points between culture, sexual expression, and some of the problems that are really common that people develop when they grow up in an environment that is restrictive and doesn't give us the right education around sexuality. Yeah. And then, so you went to San Francisco State University, and then you said, you mentioned you studied abroad at the University of Amsterdam, and you majored in health education, but you had a focus on sexual health, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. And then you had like a lot more since then, right? You got your master's and some sex coach training. Can you tell us a little bit more about those different programs that you did? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think health education is a great entry point for talking about sexuality. Obviously, because sexual health is, you know, a piece of our whole holistic health. But I didn't really have that understanding as an undergrad. I just knew "Ah, I want to learn about sexuality. You know, maybe I'll be a sex educator. Maybe I'll work at a, a health center. And that's sort of where my general feeling was. But then fast forward. In my late 20s, early 30s, I was thinking more about long-term career and how I could make the biggest impact. And to me, that made it made sense for me to focus on some kind of career where I could get in rooms with people, talk about their sex life. I had started my first podcast in grad school, and it was really practice for me of talking to people about their sex lives in a really open format. And just allowing the stories to be what they were. It wasn't prescriptive. It was just, hey, let's explore this topic. How did you get through this? Or 
what was your identity formation and how did you come to be so fully expressed as XYZ? And I felt there was real value in those conversations. So I just needed to be more of the person that people were comfortable having those conversations with. That's where, you know, the master's in psychology came in. And then I knew I needed a, an actual clinical modality to apply to my work. And coaching just happens to be a really great framework for addressing issues around sexuality because it's very goal oriented. You know, we're not really concerned about what happened in the past, although my clients do present a sexual history and assessment. And oftentimes they tell me that that's the hardest part. You know, the hardest part is getting started, period. But also giving over a lot of information and detail about your sexual history and relationship past to a pretty much stranger is an act of bravery that all of my clients end up doing and surviving. So I think it's part of the practice. But then, you know, we really get into the nuts and bolts of where do you want to go from here? And I help people create space for visioning out. Like, what does that sexual future self look like? And how do we get you from here to there? Wait, who were the people that were coming on the podcast at the point where you started it and you were just talking about their sex lives? Yeah, it was just friends, people that got referred to me, you know, after <laughs> doing a podcast for a while. And as I'm sure you know, like people were like, oh, I know somebody that would be like great. And they have this really interesting story and you should mm. definitely, you know, they'd be open to talking about it publicly. And I thought, great bring it on, you know? So I would just start getting a lot of referrals from people in my community. I mean, I have a pretty robust and diverse community anyway, so it wasn't hard to get started. Yeah, that's so interesting. Well, I love what you do. I feel like that's kind of what got us into even listening to podcasts was pulled into a sex positive podcast. And I just have loved seeing the authentic conversation. And it showed me how little people talk about sex and probably why people aren't like fully expressing themselves with their sex lives. They're embarrassed about things. There's shame about certain things. There's not much conversation or communication between people in the relationship or even like between friends talking about what's going on, what's happening. So I love what you're doing. And I want to hear more about how that plays into your coaching. So it's evolved into the coaching work you do now with one-on-one sessions with clients. So what does that look like? And who are your clients typically? Yeah, as a student at Sex Coach U, I really had to figure out, you know, what's what's my angle here? How am I going to differentiate myself from my cohort that's going through the same program. And I kind of thought at the time that like everybody that I was going through the program would be interested in the same things I am, which is like spoiler alert for anybody who's doing advanced training in any field, like the stuff that you really geek out on is the stuff you should focus on, like nothing else, literally nothing else, because you're going to become that thought leader or expert in that area if you just focus on it. So for me, it was feminism. When I studied abroad, I remember writing a paper about the identity of being a submissive and how that is either related to or butts up against feminism. I mean, it's no surprise that now I have a lot of clients who come to me and they're like kind of ashamed of their submissive desires because they are feminists. So totally relate and understand like where that's coming from. And really did think there was something to this idea of, okay, we have come so far in understanding the issues that separate the genders, right? And the things that really drive a wedge in relationships when we kind of have these strict rules and regulations for how each gender should behave. Like no one wins. No gender identification actually wins under patriarchy. So How do we gradually chip away at the ideas of how we can behave 
so that there is more space and freedom to fully embrace who we are as sexual beings. And yeah, nobody else was doing that at the time. I mean, I think there's a lot more people in the field now who understand that you can be a feminist and you can be pro-sex, you can be pro-sex worker, you can you know, be pro-porn and apply your value system and apply your ethics to those things and really talk about them as, you know, these are tools that people use to express themselves sexually. So how do we make each tool a little bit more feminist? How do we move more towards an egalitarian conversation around pleasure? And what does that look like? What does it mean when, you know, feminists are behind the camera making pornography? What does it mean when feminists are sex workers, (laughs) you know, and they've always existed, don't get me wrong, but like, how do we start to pull back the veil of these are the things that are okay for feminists to consume or to understand about themselves as sexual beings versus, you know, their true authentic desires and empowering that. I think that is really where the crux of my work came to fruition with coaching and why I attract so many feminists or feminist adjacent people, feminist curious, I like to call them. And those are my clients. Those are the people that I I work predominantly with, people who are really trying to look at the issue of sexuality through the lens of feminism. Two of the things you just said that really struck a chord with me. First of all, what you said about how you thought that everybody was going to be interested in the same thing that you were. I feel like that's such a common misconception thought that anybody would have like in any line of work. Whenever I'm thinking about something I really, really want, I just assume that like everybody else wants it too and everyone else is interested in it. But that's not the case at all. But something that I wanted to ask kind of on the topic of what you were just talking about with feminism, we talk on here like a little bit about fantasies, but we haven't really like gone too deep into it. But what advice would you have for somebody if they say they are feminist and but they do have sort of like desires for like submissive desires? How do you verbalize that to your partner, but not like, how do you make sure it doesn't seep into like the rest of your relationship? Like have those roles in your sex life, but not have it come into like your day-to-day life? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the more I've understood the power play involved in BDSM and power exchange in general and sexual dynamics, the more it makes sense to me that folks of any gender who are typically very, I guess, like (laughs) decision makers in their day-to-day lives would benefit from a sexual expression that is the inverse. And the opposite is true for folks that maybe are not as able to exert their will in their day-to-day lives for whatever reasons, often appreciate the ability to control a sexual dynamic. And this isn't like a one-to-one ratio, right? I never like to draw these blanket, like, you know, drop these truths, so to speak. Like it's just, it's an observation. And there is some data to support that, you know, particularly with male identified clients of sex workers who specify who are whose area of expertise is BDSM and specifically domination, their clientele is not these sort of like meek, you know, paper pushing dudes, but they're really like powerful people who have to make a lot of demanding decisions in their day-to-day lives, Mm -hmm. Uh, be that their professional lives or, you know, maybe family dynamics, et cetera. 
And so the inversion of that, much like a lot of things that we eroticize in our lives, like, you know, we don't go for the thing that we see every day, right? It's not attractive. It's not erotic. It's not charged in the same way as something that seems a little like deviant or like are not the norm or not the expected. That is where sexuality sort of like gets excited and, you know, is more playful, more readily accessible. And so... I guess for folks that don't understand that that is true for a lot of folks can draw some conclusions about, well, if you like that in the bedroom, then, you know, you probably also like to be told what to do in your day-to-day life. It's not necessarily a one-to-one in that case. So part of it is education. I'll probably be talking a lot about that. (laughs) Just like, you know, getting curious about what other people, like how other people live this lifestyle or engage in these activities and what our data kind of shows or supports. And then being able to talk about that, like, hey, I want to share this fantasy that I have with you. I'm a little concerned that you're going to want to like take it to other areas, but rest assured, this is strictly something that I'm wanting to explore in the bedroom. And then, you know, if your partner has questions about that, you can let them know. Yeah. Like I have a really stressful job and sometimes I just want to come home and not make any decisions. I want you to like, tell me what to do. Like, be forceful, be aggressive, not in ways that are not consensual, but could we talk about a scene in which like I come home from work and you are just like, get on the bed, take off all your clothes. You know what I mean? Like there's ways to explore this with a partner that are kind of like low stakes and can also deliver exactly what you're looking for. And I've definitely coached clients through that. Even in the dating process, I think there's a lot of my clients who are looking for that kind of sexual dynamic. And it's really hard to suss that out and who might be the right person to enact some of these scenes with. So there's a lot there. (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me of if you ever watched Billions, how Paul Giamatti went to like dominatrix clubs after living like a high powered life at work and like just wanted to be dominated. So that's a scene that will just always be ingrained in my head. (laughs) But you mentioned this a little bit just now about like once you kind of identify what your fantasy is or what your kink is and how you've coached people like find that even through dating or finding a sexual partner. What if someone has this fantasy and just wants to start incorporating it into their sex life? Do you have any tips of how to start that conversation with the partner? Like what if it's something you've never done before or never talked about before and someone's a little hesitant or nervous or ashamed? What would be some advice you would give to them? Yeah, I think the biggest lesson that I continue to learn through coaching is that when my clients are at their most vulnerable is actually when they receive the biggest benefit. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, our culture tells us that talking about sex ruins the sort of organic or spontaneous nature of sexual desire. In my experience, that's not true. In fact, what I've seen in working with individuals who gather the courage and the strength to talk to their partners about what they really, really want, they are opening up for someone to actually give that to them. And oftentimes, especially if it's like a relationship where there's a lot of trust and a lot of understanding and a lot of good communication and other areas of their relationship. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. You know, they're like, I finally said the thing and then I got it. You know, it's like a surprise, right? Because we have this notion that if I say something or if I tell this other person something that I want, that they'll reject me 
they'll reject who I am because sexuality is such a personal thing. You know, we're taught to sort of step it, we're taught to control it. And then when we share it with other people, there's also an expectation that we have to be something else to someone else. And so actually standing in your truth and showing somebody exactly who you are, it's incredibly vulnerable. But, you know, I've also had that situation where when I work with couples together, we have really tough conversations in the coaching session and then they have sex, you know, like afterwards, then they report back to me. They're like, oh, we hadn't had sex in months. And then we had a session with you and then we had sex. I'm like, why do you think that is? You had this deep, vulnerable, hard conversation. You both saw each other for who the other one was. And that opened up some of that erotic energy. It's like almost time travel for a lot of couples where the beginning of a relationship is so raw and so vulnerable and so open. And oh my God, tell me more about you, right? But then over time, you just sort of are like, oh yeah, that's you. I know you. Obviously, there are still more layers, but being able to pull the curtain back even farther and to share those layers with someone who truly, truly loves and and like understands you can be so transformative for a relationship. And it's very hard. So part of it is being vulnerable and part of it is practice because it's not easy. You just have to keep doing it in small ways. Little by little over time, it does get easier. That was the next thing I was going to ask you about was if you see couples together. So I love to hear about that. I actually, I was watching a show and now I don't remember what it was, but I was watching a show recently and it was, it was just regular. It was like couples therapy. It wasn't a dating or sex coach or anything, but the therapist was asking them like about why they were there. And they said something like, well, like we've been fighting. And the therapist was like, well, obviously like you wouldn't be here if you weren't. And it kind of like rubbed me the wrong way because I'm like, People actually should be like, you could go to couples therapy, even when everything's fine and it will only like help improve the relationship. So it kind of like reminds me of this, of a couple seeing a dating coach, like, are they all in a place where things aren't great or do couples ever see you just to like continue to improve? They want to like introduce fantasies or they want to introduce new things. Like what place in their relationship are they typically in when they see you? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that most of my couples clients are dealing with a few hurdles in the relationship. There's like kind of, I would say like the big three. (laughs) Um, (laughs) One is mismatched desire. And that can take a lot of different forms. So that could be frequency. They don't want to have sex as much as I want to have sex. And we fight all the time about it, right? Super common. So I work with couples on trying to find a happy medium if one exists. And a lot of times that means unraveling what might be some of the barriers for both parties to understand what the other one needs. And we usually come to some kind of understanding and an agreement of like, this is the new goal, right? I do have clients who are struggling with, yeah, where did that spark go? We have sex, but it's kind of meh. How do we make those improvements? How do we connect more deeply? How do we make it fun again? That's, I think, one of the things that couples in long-term partnership really struggle with. And this is all genders, all orientations, just long-term partnership can sometimes transform your sexual connection. And that's totally common. And what we do there is kind of work on figuring out like, yeah, what are your fantasies? What haven't you explored yet together? What are the things kind of maybe just below the surface that you haven't wanted to share with them, but now we have the opportunity to get a little deeper. And then, you know, the third honestly is this is our last effort 
to salvage this relationship. There may be other problems in the relationship that they're seeing a couple's therapist for. And maybe there are just sexual concerns that have been so deeply ingrained. I'm thinking about couples that are like sex averse and touch averse. So there's literally no intimacy emotionally or physically in the relationship. And they've really come to me for support on deciding, can we transform this in any way, shape or form? Can we redefine what the relationship is? Sometimes I talk to my clients about what is your marriage 2.0 or what is your long-term relationship 2.0? What does that look like? Like if we're at the tail end of something, then what is the new beginning and how do we create that together? And sometimes the relationship 2.0 is we're not a couple anymore. Unfortunately, sometimes that does happen. This is so interesting to me because like just thinking about a couple's dynamic and their sex life, I'm curious about how other things completely not related to sex are impacting your sex life. So if the sex life might have gotten a little meh, as you said, or just not as exciting, the spark's not there. I think a lot of people probably take that very personally and think like, oh, I'm not attractive enough. My partner doesn't want to have sex with me. They're not interested in me. Are they interested in someone else? Like it's always like sex is usually like the object of what's going on here, but it could be a plethora of other things like stress or resentment in the relationships. So can you talk a little bit about how these very non-sexual dynamics in a relationship play out in like affecting your libido or your sex life or the spark? I'm really glad that you brought that up, Mia, because the majority of what I talk to my clients about is not sexy at all. It's not about the physical act of sex. It's not about technique. It's not about like, oh, I'll teach you the best technique for a blowjob <laughs> and your marriage will just kick back into full swing. No, it's literally <laughs> talking about schedules, date nights, communication skills, vulnerability, making an effort. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, what does mm-hmm. that look like for both parties? And is the effort that the other one's making resonating with the other person? Because we could be trying our best to make things more connected. But if our partner isn't in a space to receive that because of resentments, because of past like little T traumas in the relationship, right? Yes, those are big barriers to wanting to explore sexually. I mean, I think some, some of the most interesting outcomes or some of the, the results of working with clients I've seen have been this disclosure of, I'm just withholding sex because of something they did, <laughs> you know, like, oh, okay. Like then we can get somewhere. What did they do? How did they do it? Let's try to repair, you know, and what does repair look like? It's going to vary from couple to couple, but yeah, I've definitely seen that too. And sometimes it's possible to repair. And sometimes the hurt, the pain, the resentment is just, it's insurmountable in the relationship. So yeah, that's always really interesting when we kind of uncover that because it's very difficult for a party to say like, oh, this is how I'm getting power right now is by withholding sex or using sex as a kind of weapon in the relationship because there are other things going on that I don't like and we haven't even been able to address those. So it's the one thing I've got. That's actually, I think, pretty common in couples that are struggling. Like it's, it's something that I think maybe we would do ourselves a service by talking about this a lot more broadly, that complications within partnership do result in sexual difficulties, but treating the sexual difficulties isn't necessarily what's going to repair the relationship. 
I think another interesting thing that I think we could address more is about what happens to a couple's sexuality when they are trying to conceive through pregnancy and postpartum, or even the adoption of a child and what that does to the intimacy of a couple. This is something that I see time and time again with my couples that are struggling. And again, the idea is if we just have more sex, dot, dot, dot. And the answer is usually not that. The answer is usually let's work on other things that are non-sexual so that that sexual connection can come back online. You keep reading my mind. I was actually just about to bring up like having kids Babies, or even yeah. trying, yeah, trying to have kids and how that can impact just the relationship overall. And of course your sex life, but I can imagine, I mean, neither me or I have kids. Um, Mia's engaged. I'm single, but I can imagine if you're at the point with your partner where you are trying to conceive, I feel like it really has an impact on your sex life, especially if you're having a difficult time. But if that's the type of couple that you're working with, or if somebody's working through that issue, what are the other like underlying things? Like how would you direct them to work on it aside from like working aside from working on their sex life? Like what are, what are the other things in the relationship that they should address? Yeah, this is where feminism, I think actually does lend a lot to the conversation. When we think about the birthing partner as sort of the sole responsible party for everything, you know, I, I see this time and time again, where that's the person where the responsibility lies, where they're tracking fertility and they're initiating times to have sex. And it's almost like this taskmaster type of persona that they embody sometimes. And it's not necessarily a role that they want to take on, but it's because this is happening within their body and they have to communicate these things. And often that results in kind of stilted and performative sex acts that aren't very erotic, not super fun. Mm -hmm. So I see couples that are really struggling with that, with like sex feels like a job now, you know, like we're putting all of our energy and efforts into this and the goal is baby which is like not really something you want to be thinking about necessarily when you're having sex. So, you know, it's like, okay, we have this goal and we're working towards it. However, the fact that you are working so hard towards it takes the eroticism and the fun out of it. And it, yeah, it sounds, it seems like work. So a lot of couples struggle with trying to conceive in that sense. And then unfortunately, because we're creatures of habit, sex can often just continue on in that pattern mm. through pregnancy and through postpartum and into the life cycle of the child as well as the life cycle of the relationship. So it's really difficult to sort of come back to a place where sex feels playful and fun and actually like a boon to the relationship after you've had this designated period of time, sometimes for years, right? Where couples are trying and really being regimented about how and when they have sex. So yeah, the way that I actually approach this is there's two things. One, I tell couples like try to take breaks if you can and make sure that you're having some sex just for the sake of sex. That is somewhat helpful to people. But I actually think that a friend of mine has a really great approach to this where she and her partner take ovulation vacations. And if it's available to you, even if it's like a staycation somewhere or making the house a place that is fun and flirty and full of things that bring you both joy for a long weekend or a period during the month when you're ovulating. That can be a really fun way to sort of mentally shift away from it being a job. 
So the ovulation vacation or staycation, I think is great. And it, it puts the emphasis on this should be fun. This should be something that like, we're actively like enjoying the process of as much as we can. Yeah. This probably just makes me seem like just proves I'm not like ready to have children at all. Because <laughs> even, even hearing like my sister, after she had a baby, she was talking about her sister-in-law saying they accidentally got pregnant months after the first baby. And she was like, oh my God, I can't even imagine. Like I didn't even want my husband to touch me. That just made me so sad <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like, after, I don't know. I'm, I feel like just whenever I think about having a child and then spending all your time taking care of another life, like not even finding the time to like have the same playful, fun, normal relationship you had with your partner. That just seems very sad to me. I know again, indicator, I'm probably just not there yet, but it's just interesting to even like bring those topics up when we're talking about sexuality and all of these topics, because I'm sure a lot of people don't really think about that as a huge impact on your sex life. No. And I think in general, people don't think of their sexuality holistically in general. And what I mean by that is that just like we have aspects of our health that change as we grow up, as we grow into the people that we are constantly becoming, we have various seasons of our life. I have, you know, a very clear memory of when I turned like 27 ish. And I was like, this is my woman body now. Like I really (laughs) felt like I was like, oh, this is, this is it, you know? And then obviously there's like a transition for me from that point in my life to now to like where I might be when I'm 40. Right. So we think of those things, I think, especially women, maybe more so because we are like very cyclical, like month by month, we're like, oh, this is a little different cycle than I felt last month or whatever, but we're more, maybe more in tune. But I don't think we think of sexuality as cyclical. We don't think of it as like having seasons, like, you know, we have different seasons of our life, moving from childhood to adulthood into older age, you know, our sexuality changes with us as well. And it feeds off of different things. It responds to different things differently as our bodies change. And the biggest thing that I think is, a, (laughs) it's kind of a bummer for a lot of women to realize is how subject to our hormones we actually are. Because most of us have fought most of our lives being like, I am the same person, regardless of whether or not I am ovulating or menstruating. (laughs) But when you have a baby, there's a lot of things that come online that are kind of beyond your control, especially, especially if you are breastfeeding. So a lot of my clients don't know that they don't have the same estrogen levels as they did prior because essentially your body is saying, let's not have another baby. Let's focus on this one little life, feeding it. And while you're lactating and breastfeeding, your estrogen levels go way down. So that actually does impact sex drive. And that's when a lot of my clients who are new parents go, what the fuck? Like I used to want to be down for sex all the time. What happened? I am not the same person. And it's like, you are the same person. You're in a different season. You know, this season, you don't have access to estrogen as much as you did before. So what can we do to develop that closeness again without sex being the primary mode for that? And there are ways to do that. There's non-sexual ways to connect. There are sexual ways to connect that don't involve, you know, penis and vagina. So sometimes it's just a matter of standing with the client in whatever they're experiencing, validating that. 
And then also providing alternatives that they might not have been able to think of themselves because we are unfortunately yeah, creatures of habit. And we believe if it's happening this way right now, it will be forever and ever. So when there, when there's darkness, it feels like there's always going to be darkness, but there's always a light. It's kind of like, it's like when a couple, like a new couple comes out of like the honeymoon phase and they're like, wait, why aren't we having sex as much as we used to? Like he's not interested anymore. Or she's not interested anymore or whatever it is. And it's very common to think that the, your sex life is just this end all be all for your relationship. And like, if it's not happening, then something's wrong, but you're so right. There's other ways to express that for your partner and everything. Do you also changing the subject completely here? Do you also work with single people? Because I know you're a dating and sex coach. So do you work with single people who are like out there trying to meet somebody? Absolutely. Yeah. I love my dating clients. And that's also something that not a lot of sex coaches do. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that focus on either individuals who are having issues with their sex life or they're focused on dating. So there's like dating coaching, which doesn't really touch sex and there's sex coaching that doesn't really touch dating, if that makes sense. So I like to bridge the two because I feel like I am a survivor of dating and I have (laughs) a good like perspective on what the hell is going on in the dating world right now. Slash. What is going on? (laughs) Oh God. I mean, I'm literally writing right now. So I'm happy to book. Oh my God. Surviving the dating world and how to make it fun again. Like how do we bring fun back to dating? And I know that's like, some people are like, I dated pre-app and during app and it was never fun. But I think there is a way to lighten the burden of the current way in which we date right now. And that's what the book is about. I can't wait to read it. I definitely have had fun dating. And I wonder sometimes if I had fun because of the time frame that it was pre-app or if it was like an age thing. Maybe it's a combination like dating, of course, as like a 21 year old, 22 year old is a lot different than a 32 year old. But so is dating in real life versus dating on your phone. So there's a lot that Mm -hmm. goes into it for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think for me, I, I do think that timing is a huge part of it. And I think that just like I believe that we all have sexual seasons, like the apps are great for indulging any kind of sexual season you're in. You know what I mean? Like they definitely can, like you can create profiles that cater to whatever you're interested in, in the world, <laughs> like literally connect with anybody <laughs> in the world who is interested in the same things that you are, which I think is fantastic. But you're right. Yeah. The IRL bar scene kind of dating, it's, it's different or even meeting friends or meeting people through friends. That's yeah. different now post COVID. COVID and I don't even think we can say post COVID yet, but you know, mm-hmm. post like major lockdowns, I think people are a lot more cautious and that does present other obstacles to connecting and finding people that you are super interested in a lot there to, uh, to unpack in the book. <laughs> yes, for sure. I can't wait to read the book, but quickly on like sex and dating, you said you have sometimes like two separate approaches, but if you're talking about sex and dating, do you have a point of view on like when you should begin a sexual relationship with someone you're newly dating and if you do have those kinks like I know you talk a lot about like BDSM and dirty talk and like other things you might just want in your sexual life when should you bring those up or like show your true colors in a 
dating environment when you're becoming sexual with a partner? Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that I do not have a time frame that I think is appropriate or inappropriate to initiate a sexual relationship with anybody. I think two consenting adults can have sex whenever the hell they want to. And if it's great for them, they can continue to do that for however long they want to. But in terms of the disclosure of a kink, I actually think that is something that is really helpful to disclose early on and to even make a focus, especially if it's something that is is actually like a fetish, for instance, something that you absolutely must have in order to have a successful sexual experience with someone. So that's that's definitely something that I work with my clients on, like what do they want from their sexual experiences and where in the wide world of the internet, can we put them so that they're going to be more successful in finding people that are open to that? Definitely. So you've already mentioned like a few of these, but are there any specific conversations that like you would recommend to anybody who's just starting? And let's say they're starting, they're dating for the purpose of a relationship and they've been seeing somebody for a few dates and they are starting to have a sexual relationship with them. Are there specific questions or topics that you think they should bring up other than like just whatever comes up naturally? Like, are there any things that you think should always be put out on the table? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I definitely feel that every new partner scenario deserves an STI debrief conversation. So, you know, disclosing anything that might be transmissible via sex, even with protection, if you have something or if that partner has something, they should disclose that to you or expressing when you were last tested and that you aren't coming to the table with anything that could be transmissible during sex. So that's great. I mean, and then also safer sex practices are also a really great way to talk through like what your expectations are of each other and keeping each other safe. So for instance, like if you're somebody who prefers using condoms, great. If you're somebody who doesn't, let's talk about what your alternatives are. Let's talk about what's happening for both of our bodies and again, how we're going to protect each other and ourselves. And yeah, I think other than that, I would just encourage a lot of feedback early on, which I know people are probably going to be like, how do you do that? That's not sexy. (laughs) But I do think there is a way in which you can do it sexily. I'm a big proponent of phrasing things from the positive. So positive reinforcement works. If they do something that you like, make sure that you express that to them. Some people really like a debrief conversation after every time. Like, I really like that one thing you did that made me feel so good. I hope we can do that again. You could just leave it there. That's enough. If I were to hear that from somebody, I mean, I would make a fair attempt next time to to do that again if they liked it. <laughs> so that's sort of, I think, the, the mentality that you can go in there with. But if somebody is really not able to meet you in your desires, then that is worth a conversation. Again, framing from the positive, like, hey, I'm a person who really likes a lot of physical affection and a long warm up before penetrative sex. That might be something that is missing from this sexual experience with this person. And you've never really noticed it before, but you're like, hey, this is what I need from you, right? Framing it like that, like, this is what I need. I'm hoping you can deliver this next time and see if they're able to take that feedback. And if there's someone who is like, 
I'm someone who doesn't listen to what other people tell me they really need from sexual you know, experiences, yeah. then perhaps that's not somebody that you want to connect with again. Right. So I think combat compatibility and assessing for that can really start like when you first meet someone, are they paying attention to what you're telling them about yourself non-sexually? Are they seeming interested in like reciprocal dialogue? If the sex goes the way you want it, that's great. If it doesn't, again, sexual feedback is another way that you can assess for compatibility. Can they hear you through the hard stuff? If it's in the interest of building a relationship with someone, you do it. I love the sexual <laughs> feedback. I think that's so important. And I feel like even if it feels a little daunting to be like, well, like after having sex, sit down and be like, well, this is what I liked and this is what I didn't. It's more approachable in like to ease into that, to like be more vocal in the bedroom, like even like sexting. I feel like those are just easy gateway conversations to have to understand like, what does my partner really want that maybe it's easier for them to like voice in this way than like just start doing. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's so important. You need to have those conversations because otherwise you're just in this relationship that's not pleasuring you. And that's sad. (laughs) (laughs) It is sad. It is sad. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of people find themselves in those positions because they believe that other types of compatibility are more important. And so the sex stuff, because it's so hard and because it's so, you know, like, oh, well, this should be good. And like everything else is fine. So I'm just not going to ever talk about the fact that I've never had an orgasm. You know what I mean? Like, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that. And that's where we really get to flex our communication skills and practice being more open in the interest of getting what we want. It's worth having those tough conversations and going through it to see if this person is able to deliver the pleasure that you deserve. Yeah, we could have a whole separate podcast talking about having an orgasm and not having an orgasm and how to approach those conversations. I feel like that's a whole Uh, other topic we could spend an hour talking about. I was going to say, I'm glad that you brought up the two other conversations to have when you were talking about STIs and STDs. I had a friend, I'm not close with her anymore, but she had an STD and it was something that she had to bring up to any potential partner. And she, of course, like some people didn't react how like she would have hoped that they would, but anyone that she ended up seriously dating actually like really opened up conversations just about sex in general. And they had like such better communication because she was able to navigate how to talk about that and how to bring it up in the beginning. And like, it kind of forced those conversations from the start. So just like anyone listening, I feel like that's obviously a very difficult conversation. I don't have like experience to speak to, but I can imagine that it only can help your communication with your partner. And then what you said about using condoms and protection and any form of birth control, have that conversation. I feel like so many people like skip over that step now and make these like assumptions. And obviously that can only lead to like more difficult conversations down the road. So as hard as that conversation might be, and as much as like, maybe it's the first time you're sleeping with someone and you don't want to bring it up, bring it up because it's only going to help you. It's super, super important. So I'm really glad that you mentioned those two. Absolutely. Yeah. I do think that these are like the health entry points to talking about sex. You know, I think if you can't bring yourself to talk about the minutia of, you know, what I like and what I don't like, if you can frame it in terms of like, this is a health concern for me. This is me taking ownership of the fact that I'm engaging with somebody who might throw my pH off, you know, like it's my health. (laughs) So let's have that conversation 
can and disclose what we would prefer in terms of taking care of ourselves and taking care of them and move forward. And I think it's really worth normalizing that. Yeah. Normalizing the conversation about around sex will solve for so many of these problems because just hearing it more, engaging in a conversation, having conversations like these, people hearing a conversation like this, it makes a topic that is often just like brushed under a rug, like much more approachable. People feel more confident. A lot of it's just building up confidence. I know like in my past, I'd be just maybe embarrassed or shy to say something or like the words just like couldn't come out of my mouth because I was so like embarrassed. Like that changes when you become more confident, have the conversations and talk more. So I love what you're doing and I'm so happy you were here to talk Thank to us you. today. I feel like we could honestly talk for hours yeah, with you. Like, how but- has it been <laughs> I know. We have so many more topics. I would have loved to talk to you about, but we always Another do like time. to close with some questions about you personally. So we talked so much about other people's relationships and ways to strengthen them and things they need. But what is one must have quality for you and a significant other? Must have quality. <laughs> I'm thinking about my current partner who is <laughs> just amazing to me. And I think the qualities that I appreciate about him aren't necessarily what I would have expected. Mm. For me, I have a really kind of more optimistic, I'm a coach, like I'm supposed to believe in like the the good innate qualities of everyone. The balance that he gives to my life is that, you know, he is a little bit more reserved and like cautious about people. And whenever I'm struggling with the maybe emotional fallout of something that's happening in my family or with my friends, like he's so able, I think this is empathy here, right? He's always been able to kind of like real talk, supportive, but also like a right amount of just like, I'm on your side. Like, you know, I I get it. That person did something that was shitty to you and like feel your feelings. And I'm like, great. And he's like, and also you might want to say you're sorry. (laughs) Fine. So I don't know. I don't know what that is, but I've never really experienced it in partnership before. I know it's, it's, it's really grounding for me. I need a name for that quality because I feel like that is super important to be able to give it to you like straight, but also have that empathy and be in your corner. Yeah. It's, it's really refreshing. Okay. What is your favorite method of self-care? Baths. Uh, I am a big ritual bath taker. And I, in general, I'm somebody who's really drawn to like water. I've never really lived someplace that I wasn't like very close to water. And it's like purifying, but it's grounding. It's relaxing. And sometimes I meditate in the bath or like listen to woo-woo like tones to attract abundance. You know, I live in California. So that's right up our alley. We love that. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I always like whenever I hear a guest say that baths are their favorite method of self-care, I like always say I'm going to start and I never do. So I actually have a calendar reminder that I invited a bunch of my girlfriends on. Oh, that invite she says, me. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the 15th of every month and it just says, have you taken a bath? That's amazing. That's I was going to say, it sounds very organized. And then it became even more organized for the calendar. Virgo. It's just, yeah, you got <laughs> to calendar it in. Yeah, it's our bath. <laughs> That's amazing. What is one food you can't live without? Hmm. 
bagels. I want to say something else, but I mean, bagels give me so much joy and I'm really looking forward to returning to the East Coast where they're affordable and actually good. Mm. Because yeah, you can ask, pay like, an arm and a leg. They're good. There are some that are good, but you're paying so much for them mm. because they're in such short supply out here. <laughs> so, you know, the such supply demand, <laughs> right? Okay. So we always close with advice. So what advice would you give to your younger self? Mm, to my younger self, not to anybody else. Ooh, <laughs> the first thing that popped in my mind was don't sweat the small stuff, which is so cliche. Um, but true, I just though. imagine me being like, don't sweat the small stuff, Manisha. Um, But it's true. I can think that I err on the side of kind of obsessive stress and it can kill you. <laughs> so, mm. uh, so that's why the meditation practice, that's why the yoga, that's why the therapy, that's why the community, that's why the ritual baths. And I've always been a bath taker, so I wouldn't tell myself to take more baths because I was already <laughs> doing that. So I think, yeah, don't don't sweat the small stuff in that like there's a bigger picture and you're not going to be able to see it for many, many, many years, if ever. So just really lean into being you and um, that's all you are really here to do. I love that. I'm the same way, a chronic <laughs> dresser. <laughs> I'm always I, like, uh, why does my back hurt? Why does my stomach hurt? Like, yeah, I'm like, why is my jaw so tight? Well, before we but close, can anyway. you just tell everybody a little bit about your podcast and then also how they can work with you? Yeah, of course. Um, so if you go to myeshabattle.com, you will find all the information that you need to know, including where to sign up for my newsletter, which is every couple of weeks. I love giving people um, monthly meditations about sex. So if you're somebody who really struggles with kind of making the space for thinking about these things, it's a gentle reminder in your inbox every couple of weeks. I also have a blog there so you can avail yourself of articles about some of the very topics that we discussed here, which is great. I love that I get to continue the conversation and you can also take a look at my coaching work and reach out if you'd like to work with me. I work with individuals and couples on a three month or six month basis. So you would be kind of signing on to work with me for that term. And I like to think of it as project managing your sex life. So if you have a project you want to work on, please feel free to reach out and um, we can work on it together. I love that. Thank you so much for being here. These are the best conversations and we're honored to have had you. So thank you very much. Thank you. This was a joy. So yes, thank you so much. And we'll put all of that info in the show notes too. So everyone listening can find you whether on Instagram, your website and everything like that. But thank you so much. We love chatting with you. Yeah, this is great. Thank you again. 